One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Of course, you got to take the flak jacket. But you would never wear any synthetic material. It all has to be wool or cotton because if there's a fire or an explosion, that stuff melts into your skin and you can't get it out. You know, it's, uh, in the hospital, they use a kind of cheese grater thing to remove the stuff, and uh, you really don't want that. I contacted the, the confidential uh, hotline that Reuters has for its journalists, and they put me in touch with Anthony Feinstein in Toronto. I fit all the, the characteristics of the other journalists covering if not always conflict, but difficult situations. You know. That was Reuters journalist Finbar O'Reilly speaking in the documentary Under Fire, Journalists in Combat. Usually when I talk about the dangers of conflict reporting, O'Reilly would be the kind of guest that I'd have on this show. A field reporter who has had boots on the ground, who's dodged bullets and hot zones, and who has the scars and the PTSD to prove it. But today I'm going to talk to his shrink instead. Anthony Feinstein is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto. He specializes in the psychological distress of journalists. He treats journalists as patients. 
and he does research into the kinds of psychological trauma that commonly afflicts them. In fact, he created the field of study focused on psychological trauma in journalists. It simply did not exist before him. He stumbled upon all of this by accident, as you'll hear, when a patient presented to doctors with symptoms so severe, it appeared to the world as if she had suffered something like a major stroke. But when they ran the usual battery of tests, the MRIs, etc., it all remained a mystery. This was not a stroke. This was something else. Something that she'd picked up on the job as a frontline reporter. Dr. Anthony Feinstein joins me in our Toronto studio in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Robert McJanet, Laura Tamman, Ian Leitch, Nicole Hertubiz, Matthew Duck, Mandy and Trevor Penny, Mark Delaire, and Odette. I'm Odette, a not-for-profit professional newly living in Ottawa. I support Canada Land because I consume a lot of journalism and I like it to be insightful, well-researched, and ideally independent. Canada Land meets the mark on all fronts, so it only seemed fair that I chip in to support something I value and believe in. So my name is Anthony Feinstein. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto. I run a research laboratory which looks at neuropsychiatric changes in people with various disorders, most notably multiple sclerosis. And I also have a second strand to my research, which is looking at journalists who do combat and conflict work and how they cope psychologically with that. Is that a common combination of focuses for a psychiatrist, for a researcher? It's a very rare combination. They're two very different areas, and they came about through serendipity. What do you mean by serendipity? So in May 1999, a patient was referred to my clinical service, and they thought she'd had a stroke. She's had difficulty speaking, and her level of consciousness was reduced. Anyway, after extensive workup, including many brain scans, they couldn't find the lesion. They felt this wasn't a, it wasn't a stroke, and they thought it might be a very unusual psychiatric presentation. So she came to my service, and she turned out to be a frontline journalist. And she did very well with psychotherapy. She recovered, and I remember saying to her at the time, she'd been working in, in East Africa covering uh, famine, and she'd seen a lot of death and dying. And I said to her, you knew you were getting into trouble when you were out in the field. You could see that your emotions were, were letting you down. Why did you not reach out for help? And she said, you don't understand my profession, that if I told my editor I was feeling this way, they would have pulled me from my position, and they'd never send me out again. And I was really struck by this response, which sounded quite punitive. So I remember saying to my MS research team, just take a couple hours off, and let's go and comb the literature, and let's see what we can find, what's been published on journalism, and combat, and stress, and war, and emotions. And we couldn't find a single publication, not one. You're telling me that this was a journalist who, in her work in the field, suffered some sort of a trauma that was so acute that it presented as if she'd had a stroke. Yes, very dramatic. And that's how she ended up in your office, because that's, that's who you w were, were treating at the time. Her diagnosis is what we call a conversion disorder. Um, it's now called functional neurological disorder, in which it can masquerade as a neurological condition, but the underlying problem is psychiatric. It's your emotions. In the old days, it had the pejorative term of hysteria, but we don't use it anymore because it's a, it's a bad word. So she presented with a conversion disorder, and she was a frontline journalist. And to my surprise, we found that there wasn't a single 
publication in the trauma literature in 1999 on the topic of journalism and stress and emotions. And I ended up doing the very first study of journalism and stress and war and emotions. And we subsequently published it in the American Journal of Psychiatry. What did you find? Well, we found that journalists who go off to cover war, not surprisingly, have a lot more post-traumatic stress disorder and depression than journalists who stay back in Canada and cover the domestic news. And in many ways, that makes you know, perfect sense that this is a group that's spending you know, six months or more away from home in the world's most dangerous places. But our biggest finding was that despite having relatively high rates of PTSD and depression, the journalists weren't getting help. And these organizations were not helping them. They didn't recognize the problem. Do you attribute that to the same reason why that, that initial patient of yours would not seek help, that, that she was afraid of being pulled off of the job if she had complained? I think in part, yes. I think there was a stigma attached to it. I think the news organizations did not want to recognize this as a potential problem. It was still very much a, a matcha culture. You know, the, the right stuff, you've got to have the right stuff, and you haven't got it, then don't do it. I think that was the climate at the time. And everybody knew, of course, that journalists were developing problems, but they just kind of pushed it away, you know, go to the bar, have a drink, suck it up, and move on. That kind of attitude was very prevalent at the time. And as I started to do my work back in 99 on this really interesting project, two very well-known journalists were killed in West Africa. One was Kurt Schork, who worked for Reuters, who was regarded by many as a, as a mentor. And the other one was a great cameraman, Miguel Gelmoreno, who worked for Associated Press. And they were, they, were, they were killed together in ambush. And it sent shockwaves through the news industry that you know, two very experienced men at the top of their profession they were killed on the same day, same ambush. And that's when I was starting to do my work. And so there was this awful synergy of death and dying in, in high-profile journalists coinciding with this researcher from the University of Toronto saying, well, let's look at emotions. Let's see how, it, how is this affecting people emotionally. And so my study took off at that point, and organizations wanted to work with me. And so we got data from the CBC, um, CNN, Reuters, Associated Press, some of the big American networks. And they all opened their, their Rolodex to me and said, yeah, you know, these are our foreign correspondents. By all means, approach them. And so I got a large sample, 140 frontline journalists whose careers were defined by conflict and war. When you talk about what was happening in the news and what was changing in terms of conflict reporting, my mind goes to Daniel Pearl. So Daniel Pearl was the Wall Street journalist who was kidnapped in Pakistan and held by an extremist group and subsequently executed and beheaded, basically, uh, on camera. And he was killed because he was an American and because he was Jewish, basically. And this was targeting a journalist, very high-profile journalist. And that sent a very clear warning sign to journalists that you are now in the crosshairs of insurgents. I think there'd been a belief amongst journalists because they were, because they were not competents, because they were observers, that somehow war would spare them that they wouldn't be targeted, that they could be these neutral observers and report on you know, what was going on, which in an ideal world would be fantastic. But the world had changed after, after 9-11. Journalists were seen as high-profile targets. Kidnap a big-name journalist, it makes news. And you, know, you can hold them for ransom, and when you, when you execute them on camera like that, it's, it's such, a, such a chilling, terrible event. And so the murder of Daniel Pearl, I think, was a, was a watershed moment for, for, for media where they thought, hold on, we are very, very vulnerable. And um, we are being targeted. 
it's impossible to have this conversation without recognizing that right now there are uh, journalists in the field uh, taking their lives in their hands in Gaza under extreme danger. And over 60 of them have been killed. And it used to be, at least my perception, was that those combat journalists, conflict journalists who run towards danger with press written on their back, Always that's an incredibly dangerous occupation, but there was a certain deference that, that somebody is there to bear witness and that even in the midst of battle, efforts were taken to avoid injuring them, uh, that those casualties were, were, were considered. I mean, it, it happened, but it feels like the trends for reasons that you explained, whether it's explicitly targeting journalists or whether it's just a lack of that deference or care at an age when we no longer have a few very powerful media outlets. And there's confusion as to whether a journalist is a journalist or if they're a, a player in a, or they're con conceived of as a player. It, it, it feels like it's more dangerous than ever. Is that feeling borne out in your research and in your experience of what's happening? I've been doing this research now for 23 years, and I can see this steady trend of things becoming increasingly more hazardous for this profession. And that's just talking about war and the front lines of combat, but the multiple other stresses that are present now that weren't present, you know, 23 years back when I started my research. Like what? Well, online harassment and social media. We have a data set collected within Canada looking at the degree to which journalists are harassed. And it's striking. The level of verbal aggression and hostility directed at the media is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And sometimes it's not just verbal threats. You know, journalists are getting followed. People are showing up at the newsroom, etc. This wasn't that prevalent 23 years back. Yeah, I, I, I mean, very familiar with these trends, and we experience them here. And... I've often wondered if this is just a reflection that people have an avenue to voice these things that they didn't have. But it does feel like it's more than that. It does feel like there is a very strange vilification as, as the sector gets smaller and smaller and there are fewer journalists than ever. For some reason, it's a very popular target for people. People have very negative feelings towards, towards reporters and I think that that's an interesting dynamic that I've seen a lot of people struggle with, in which, uh, in all honesty, I've struggled with myself, where to do the work, you feel like, well, I, what makes this worth doing is that you're informing people. But when your chief point of interaction with the public is one where you're getting so much negativity back, that can be very psychologically difficult. I think you touched on a really important point over there because you're now getting into the territory of what we call moral injury. And I'll define moral injury for you. It's not, it's not a psychiatric disorder, but it's a, it's, a, it's a real entity. So what is moral injury? So moral injury uh, is a condition that can arise from witnessing or perpetrating or failing to prevent acts that transgress your moral compass. And so I'll say it again, from witnessing or perpetrating or failing to prevent acts that transgress your moral compass. Witnessing, now witnessing as a journalist, that's our job. Perpetrating? If you are guilty of moral transgressions? Okay, so I'll give you an example. We did a research study a few years back funded by a European group looking at journalists covering this huge migration crisis in Europe, you know, the million-plus migrants moving across Europe. And we didn't find PTSD in this group of journalists. There wasn't a whole lot of depression, but there was moral injury because journalists have been placed in an extraordinarily difficult moral situation. For example, you could have a journalist on a beach in Greece or Italy, and there's a boat that's washing ashore, and there are no first responders. The only person who's there is a journalist. And then what's your role? Is it your role to take photographs, to write the story, or is it your role to wade into the water and help people who can't swim? Many journalists will say, you put your humanity first, and you help people. 
but then you can have editors back in Toronto or New York or London saying, why didn't you get the story? We sent you there, take the picture, someone else beat you to it, what went on? And the person says, well, you know, I had this crisis on my hands. There were people who couldn't swim and I felt I had to help them. And so you start finding journalists at odds with their newsroom and the journalists would say, well, you know, how far do I go when it comes to helping people? Where does my role end? This is a classic moral dilemma. Exactly. And, and, and it seems ghoulish to stand there filming someone as they die. And, and any kind of code of professional, like, well, you're not there to get involved in the story, feels very uh, a weak and, and, and cowardly reply when uh, save a human life if you can. And yet, when you are experiencing things like that every day and your job is to tell the story, it could be argued that this is more important. Yeah, and, you know, the even more nuances in that. So when you wade into the water, which person do you help? How many people do you help? And once you've helped them, what do you do? Do you go and find water for them? Do you find food for them? Where does your level of assistance help when there's no one else there? It's just you. And you have to make these decisions in real time, and there's no, you know, there's no time for reflection or debate. You just have to respond. And so you can see how, from a moral perspective, some journalists felt they made the wrong call. Or they felt that the newsrooms didn't understand it or the editors made the wrong call and they found themselves in this moral conflict with the broader story. Yeah, there were so many morally fraught issues that descended on journalists without any forethought. It just happened. And that led to a sense of moral injury. And moral injury is associated with shame and guilt and, in the case of journalists, anger. And the military have known about this for a long time. The military are way ahead of journalism when it comes to moral injury because they know that soldiers coming back from Vietnam, for example, or from the war in Iraq, came back with a sense of moral injury. They felt they'd lost their way morally in this conflict. Either they had survivor's guilt or they were feeling guilty for things that they had done. Yes. Or things that they didn't do. Yeah, they thought they were going to, like in Iraq, we're going to spread democracy, we're going to have a new Middle East, we're going to you know, create a healthier country, and everything turned out you know, very differently. And they came back with a sense of, well, this wasn't our mission, and felt a sense of moral guilt, and there's some shame, and, and that was very difficult for them. And so the military knows about this. Journalists didn't. And then we unearthed this in our study of the migration crisis in Europe, and moral injury was the number one challenge. My understanding is that there's a phone number that Reuters gave to their field reporters and, and photojournalists where they could anonymously make a phone call if they needed help, and that, that phone number would connect their journalists to you. That's going back many years. I would consult to news organizations like Reuters. I still consult to some, for example, CNN and the New York Times. So I help journalists in Canada with, with the Globe and Mail. And I do education sessions for many news organizations mm -hmm. in this country trying to educate journalists about what are the psychological risks of covering conflict. But if a, a specific journalist is suffering, you have treated them? Yes. Oh, yes. Is it treatable? It depends on what they've got, but in my, in my experience now, which is considerable over two decades, the majority of journalists often just need a couple sessions to kind of recalibrate their responses and get a better understanding of why they feel the way they do. If they've developed, however, something like post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a much more significant mental illness, then the therapy can take much longer and can be more complex. To put it into broader perspective, we showed that if you define your career by conflict reporting, your lifetime prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder is very close to what it is in frontline veterans. So it's high, in, you know, like mid-20s, 25, 26%. So if you're doing this work year after year, decade after decade, the chance of you developing post-traumatic stress disorder is about one in four, which is high. Put it into broader perspective, in the Canadian population, the lifetime prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder is 6 to 7%. So this is, you know, three 
three times at least mm-hmm. higher than in the general population. But that's not surprising because this is a group of people who are working in the world's most dangerous places. And here's another amazing statistic. The journalists whose careers are defined by war reporting probably have more exposure to violence and death than any other profession. But they seek it. They seek it. Oh, yes, it's voluntary. Absolutely. They find the work fascinating. They want to do it. And they'll even, they'll even neglect their own health and, and avoid treatment to the point where they look like they're suffering from a stroke in order to stay in the field. Joe, Joe Sacco, the uh, war journalist cartoonist, wrote a book called War Junkie about how life would feel drained of, of interest and in, he would seek out conflict zones. He would seek out war zones so that he could go and observe them and, and write about them and draw about them. Yeah, I mean, touched on a couple of things there. I think you're right that 20 years back, the whole issue of good emotions in journalism wasn't recognized. It's certainly changed now. So the big news organizations recognize that this is a this is a problem and they are providing therapy and help to the journalists. So this has now become pretty standard for, for news organizations and thank goodness that's the case. The news organizations have read what my group published and that in part has changed this culture in the newsroom. So it's a different landscape now. You've written a book that had me thinking about moral injury differently than an occupational hazard because your most recent book talks about moral injury as something that inspires people to become journalists in the first place. Can you talk about that? So you're talking about moral courage. Yes. And that, that's my new book. And so I'm really struck by journalists who work in countries that have a very poor record of press freedom how they stand up and hold governments accountable, even though this is very risky and very dangerous work for them. So I focus on countries with a dreadful record of press freedom like Russia and Belarus, Bangladesh, Azerbaijan, Syria, Afghanistan. I focused on countries where journalists are very vulnerable. And what intrigued me was, why are there certain individuals who will not be silenced by drug cartels or oppressive authoritarian regimes. Not just the the possibility that they might be killed for doing this job, but like in some cases, a probability. Yes, it's, it comes with, with the risk of that. It comes with the risk of being locked up, incarcerated, torture, losing your, your job, losing your livelihood. You know, these, these repressive governments make life a misery for journalists mm-hmm. because they recognize that if you want to control the populace, you've got to control the message, go after the media. And so what you find in countries like this is that these journalists are often the last vestiges of civil society. And you know, the governments have shelled out what, what remains of civil society, that the courts are lost, there's no longer an independent judiciary, the NGOs have been forced to leave the country, there's nothing left. Institutionally, there's nothing but some individual saying, I, I will simply tell everyone what's happening. Exactly. And so they become the last bastions of, of freedom in their country. But the journalists keep talking. This handful of journalists keep doing it. They keep on holding their bad governments accountable. And so the question is, why? Where does this motivation come from? And then that led me to explore the complex issue of motivation, and one primary factor in particular, which I think is moral courage. And so when I look at the 19 journalists in my book from these these, these difficult countries, I think a common thread that unites them all is moral courage. And I see that as their antidote to moral injury. So if you come back to the definition of moral injury, a condition that can arise from witnessing or perpetrating or failing to prevent acts of transgression, moral compass. So you see acts of commission, things that you do or other people do, but there's acts of omission, things that you fail to do. And keeping quiet is an act of omission. And for these individuals, keeping quiet is unacceptable because by keeping quiet, 
leave yourself open to moral injury. And with moral injury comes feelings of shame and guilt. And so time and time again, these journalists would tell me that if they kept quiet, they would feel ashamed. They would feel guilty. So where does that emotion come from? Well, link it to moral injury. By speaking out, making a stand, holding their governments accountable, they, in a sense, keep the negative emotions of moral injury at bay. So they'll suffer moral injury on the job, but in these stories you tell, these biographies really that you write, it started way before that. Somewhere earlier in life, they were born into societies in which they witnessed things that were awful. They became aware at some point, the blinders fell from their eyes and they saw, or they participated in, and they were injured and they felt shame and guilt. And journalism was an expression of their moral courage, which leads them to more moral injury. It's almost like a superhero origin story, is, is, that, is that the only way of coping with what is wrong is to just, they, they find the courage to talk about it. Well, it's one way. There are going to be other ways as well. But I think for them, keeping quiet is not an option. What is your origin story? How did you find yourself, beyond just that serendipitous encounter with that one journalist, I, I do notice in your biography that, that you were born in South Africa. A lot of people would look at that and say, well, that was a morally compromised place to be, to be born. It was, absolutely. I mean, I grew up under apartheid, and I left in 1986 at the height of the apartheid. So yes, I came from a very troubled country where there were morally egregious things, apartheid, of course, being the, the public face of it all. So yeah, you grew up in a difficult society where there are lots of racial tensions, and you can feel very uncomfortable about it and feel morally compromised before South Africa became independent. When you traveled abroad, when you told people that you were South African, you know, the reactions could vary from indifference to, you know, anger. They'd hold you responsible. They would. And so I went to live in England. My wife and I were married, and soon after that we left. While I was well accepted into society, I was very aware of the way people viewed South Africa. And on a personal level, there would be things said against me because of who I was. I think when you, when you grow up that way, you, you develop a moral sensibility. Well, I hope you do. That stays with you. And, you know, we're all the product of our early influences. And I think in part, my work that I do now is linked to where I come from, the history of South Africa, and growing up in an apartheid state. One way of, of coping with a foundational moral injury and finding one's moral courage might be to, to perform journalism, and, and another way might be to help people perform journalism. Yes, for sure. The 19 journalists who are interviewed for this book, I have tremendous admiration for them because I think they're extraordinary individuals. They are making a very courageous stand, recognizing that by doing so, they're inviting a lot of trouble onto their head. It's a rare person who can do that and sustain that. That's the important thing. They can sustain it, and they've sustained it over many years despite this relentless harassment. I'm not that kind of journalist. I've met those kinds of journalists. I've met recently Trisha Evangelista, a Philippine journalist, who is very much as you describe, somebody who is almost like the last, one of the last, there, there are other journalists in the Philippines who have taken this upon themselves and I think you put it well. They might be all that's left of civil society and the full weight of the state comes down on them. And when your problem is one individual without much resource, without much money, without much institutional resource, there are all kinds of ways that you can persecute that person. And it's hard to relate to the level of courage she possesses. You just feel like most people would run or buckle. Mm -hmm. But almost in relation to the level of persecution and oppression, it seems to just kind of double the courage. And, and at a certain point, 
the stakes are such like, well, I might be killed, but we're, we're, we're way past that. So I might as well keep going in this direction. But then, then they start to target the family and things like that. And things get really ugly. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we found. I got a commission from UNESCO to go to Mexico to look at journalists covering the drug violence there, which is extraordinary. I mean, you, you climb on a plane in Toronto, and a few hours later, you're in Mexico and such a wonderful country, but so violent. What I learned from working with my Mexican colleagues was that the cartels don't just go after journalists, but they go after their parents yeah. and their children. And they recognize that they might not be able to silence the journalists, and so they expand their their violence to affect family members. And that starts sending a chill through journalists. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. So when the families are targeted, we we can look at these figures as incredibly heroic for continuing on in their work despite those dangers. But if you were one of those family members, you would you would think of them as very differently, right? If your own spouse or, or mother is is endangering you by doing journalism, that's its own pathology. You write about a journalist like that. Her family begged her to stop. So you're referring to Anna Politkovskaya, the Russian journalist? Yes. Why did she not stop? So her family wasn't necessarily targeted, but she certainly was targeted. And, you know, she was writing in Russia, and she covered the Chechen war, and she uh, kept on calling out Vladimir Putin. I mean, she saw Putin as a terrible guy, and she would write openly about her disdain for Putin. And that's very dangerous to do in Russia. Journalists were getting killed, and she knew they were getting killed. Her colleagues were getting killed. 
There's even one uh, very famous line that she said at the graveside of a journalist who was being buried. You know, I'm going to be next. So she she could see what was coming because the the landscape for journalists in Russia when you oppose Vladimir Putin is extremely hazardous. But she kept going. So p- people have looked at Anapoloskovskaya's life very carefully, trying to find you know what motivated her to do it. And you know one theory was she'd been very traumatized by her coverage of the Chechen war. She had been kidnapped. She had you know, been subject to mock execution. She had come very close to dying. So there was a suspicion that she was quite traumatized by her work. And what we know about individuals who are traumatized, who've got post-traumatic stress disorder, is that their judgment might be impaired. They can you know, take risks that they normally wouldn't do if their emotions were in, in a better state. That's very interesting because one would imagine that you shut down and, and become risk adverse because you've been traumatized and you'll avoid the trauma. But you actually can go further, deeper into risky behavior. It can go both ways. Absolutely. You can become avoidant, which is a symptom of PTSD and to step back from everything and then you can't function as a journalist. Um, or in some cases, if you don't recognize what's going on, your decision-making process becomes more and more risky. And I've certainly seen that. So I've seen journalists who were in small little bureaus in the middle of conflict zones like Afghanistan, for example, and one journalist is traumatized and the decision-making process breaks down and they take more risks and they're miscalculating things. And they don't just put their own life in danger, but they can affect the safety of their colleagues as well. So it, it goes both ways. I, I mean, I've seen it and it's basically you reach a point of fuck it. Yep. And, and, you, and you run towards the danger. Coming back to Anna Polikoskaya, people have analyzed her you know, behavior because what happened with her was she was killed and she was murdered on Putin's birthday. So talk about a message being sent. She's the one journalist that you were unable to interview because she had Correct. Di- died. Correct. But, you know, people have looked at you know, Why did she keep pushing? The, you know, why did she keep pushing even though she knew that the risk was so extraordinarily high? And you know, people have written about the shame that she felt at the behavior of the Russian government, the shame that she felt that the way Vladimir Putin had, you know, shelled out democracy, it was pulling Russia back to its old communist days, etc. Well, where does shame come from? Shame is one of the cardinal emotions that associate with moral injury. And so my theory is that, come back to what I said earlier, that when journalists witness people behaving in an egregious fashion, things that transgress your moral compass, and when they see great swathes of society keeping quiet and not protesting against it, so acts of omission, that can be the source of a very powerful moral hurt, moral injury. And the way that you can deal with it is to show moral courage, to say, I'm not going to be this way. I'm going to call out the wrongdoing. I'm going to call out the egregious behavior, and I'm not going to keep quiet. And by doing so, you feel good about yourself. I am not making the mistakes that I feel my fellow countrymen are making. I'm going to call my own government for what it is, you know, a dictatorial, authoritarian, anti-democratic regime. And she writes very open how she detested Putin. She would say this. Can I ask you about that? Because we're taught to be objective. We're taught you're not supposed to say that you detest the person that you're writing about. One way in which when I have met journalists who have been persecuted in this way, uh, anybody who feels persecuted, whether they're in like a bad divorce or whether they are, feel like they are the, you know, public enemy number one of an authoritarian regime, they can sound crazy. They are obsessed with their persecution. They go on and on, and, and they, they become paranoid. It gets under people's skin to the point where that, that's their entire psychological worldview. And then you can be—they have found themselves attacked on that basis. They've been radicalized. They are not an objective observer. She is now an activist. She's, a, she's an enemy of Putin's. She's a, an enemy of the state. 
Have you seen this dynamic play out? Well, I think this was the case over here because editors were telling her to tone it down, you know. By all means, call out egregious behavior, but like tone down your rhetoric, you know, just don't be so vociferous in your, in your condemnation of what you see and of the man itself because they, the editors could see as well, you know, this is so mm-hmm. very, very And then dangerous. she found herself in conflict with her own editors and, and, and lacking those supports. Yeah, well, you know, she was just a very fiery person who wasn't prepared to back down under any circumstances and unfortunately for her, it ended in the worst possible way. Very painful for the family as well, of course. Now, we don't know her intentions, but you, you, you do write about how all of these factors contribute to journalists being very difficult people, difficult for their families, difficult for their colleagues. It took an extraordinary courage to do what she did. And if things are going to change in places like Russia, it's going to require people to make a stand. Mm-hmm. People are going to have to, you know, put their heads up above the parapet and say, things are wrong over here and we need to do something about it. And she's the person who who did that. And so it becomes, you know, really complex. So I, I, I don't judge that. I mean, I didn't know her. I never met her. I'm very cautious in arriving at definitive conclusions. But I do think when you look at the nature of her behavior, and you compare it to the other people in the book, you see similarities. And the similarity that I come back to time and time again is this moral courage that drives their, their behavior. We've been talking mostly about exceptional journalists, outliers, really. The majority of journalists don't do conflict reporting, and, and even those who do don't necessarily make the decisions or, ha- or have the kind of courage that we're, that we're discussing in every case. But you have developed tools that are being applied widely across journalism. Specifically, I'm talking about the Toronto Moral Injury Scale for Journalists. And this is being used across the industry. And this is being applied to all journalists or, you know, irrespective of what kind of journalism people do. There are nine points here. I'm going to run through them really quickly here to basically figuring out whether you are suffering from moral injury. Number one, I was troubled by my interaction with an online audience. Number two, my failure to respond to editors who acted in ways that I considered morally wrong troubled me. Number three, I was troubled by the culture of my news organization, which might be considered morally compromised at times. Number four, it unsettled me when I learned about subjects who acted in ways that I considered morally wrong. Five, the morally compromised decisions of editors upset me. Six, in my work as a journalist, I regretted acting in ways I considered morally wrong. Seven, I was troubled by online morally compromised responses to my work. Eight, I regretted not speaking out against what I saw as the morally compromised culture of my news organization. And finally, nine, I felt upset when I witnessed colleagues behaving in ways that I considered morally wrong. Doctor, I don't know of a journalist who would not answer yes to many of these questions. I certainly would answer yes to all of them. And I, I'm sure that there are, are colleagues here who would answer yes to them of me. We, we, we experience these things every day. What are the rates when you actually apply this moral injury scale? How many journalists are you finding are morally injured? Let me just backtrack. Remember, moral injury is not a mental illness, okay? It's just a condition. The study came about, we did the scale because when we did our original research looking at journalists covering the migration crisis in Europe, there was no journalism tool to measure moral injury. We had to borrow from the military. The military have a couple. But you can't apply a military construct to journalism because they're so different. So we had an imperfect instrument to measure a very important behavioral characteristic in journalists. So that became the impetus that we have to develop something specific for journalists. So we did it. I mean, mean, we did it very carefully. We had focus groups amongst Canadian journalists. We sat down and said, let's talk about the issue. And they came up with, you know, many, many points of potential moral distress for them. 
We collated those. We then did a whole lot of statistical analyses, and we went out into the field again, and we kept, you know, captured more data to see. So we went through a very lengthy, very rigorous process to devise a scale, which is what you have to do to come up with a new psychometric measure. And the questions are not just yes or no. The questions are answered along a continuum from no to moderate to mild to moderate to severe to very severe. So yes, there are going to be people who will tick a lot of these boxes, but they will do so at a very low level. These things happen, we see them, but we're not too distressed by them. It's when you get towards the top end of the scale that you start worrying, because if you've got a lot of extreme or severe answers, then you're going to have people who are feeling very morally distressed or compromised. And so you have to you know, define, well, where's your threshold? At what point does it become a problem? And that's going to vary according to the story that you're looking at, the nature of the, you know, of the event. They're going to be you know, minor moral transgressions, but they're going to be some really very severe ones. So I can't give you a simple answer to a complex question. It depends where you fall along the spectrum, and it depends on what's the issue at hand. And the online world has probably exaggerated and amped this up because, you know, these, these, these two points here about troubled by interaction with an online audience and troubled by online morally compromised responses to one's work. It's a daily occurrence now, right? Yeah, because you're, you know, you're, you're out there. You're, you're in the midst of the public. You are very public figures. People know who you are. You've got a huge audience. You reach you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. You're, mm-hmm. You have a profession that is potentially very powerful in terms of swaying people's opinions. And so, yes, you are in the midst of all of this and you become the lightning rod for people's frustrations and their anger and their admiration, all sorts of emotions. And also it's the culture wars bring some of the same psychological impacts of the war wars. Enormously, right? enormously, absolutely. You know, then they're going to be very specific Canadian contexts for moral injury, for example. You know, I've worked with journalists who are covering this very difficult story of the residential schools, you know, and the murdered and missing indigenous women. And this is a hugely painful story for them. And they're going into communities that have been deeply traumatized and they are overwhelmed by the the pain that they see in people and their first response is to try and help Mm -hmm. to try and do something and then you're on the slippery slope of moving from your profession as a journalist into something different maybe a social worker and you don't want to do that because you're not trained to do that but you're first impulse your first humane impulses that the people in front of me are so distressed that they're trying to do something more than journalism. Yeah. And that creates a problem. It's not simply that you don't have the training to be a social worker or to be somebody's therapist, but that can be in conflict with your job to who you actually serve and you serve your audience who you're supposed to be informing. It's very tricky because to a certain extent, you do advocate for your sources you, in that you are telling their story, but you are not there to represent them. You're there to represent the truth. And source work with people, traumatized people, Sometimes you're the only person they have to speak to. And sometimes it can be really beneficial if they think of you as a confidant and even as their therapist. But ultimately, you you will be moving on to another story. And ultimately, your work is not judged by the amount of comfort or help that you are providing to them. These are very tricky relationships. Very, exactly. And you can see why it's so morally fraught. And so through good intentions, you can end up getting in very deep into issues that you can't make sense of or sort out. And so through wanting to help, you inadvertently do some harm. And you can see how moral injury can take root in a situation like this. And I've seen it repeatedly. I want to finish by asking you about a, a different type of journalist, a different skill set, maybe. I don't know how we talk about it. We've been talking about journalists with regards to their courage and their empathy and how they navigate these things and how it can hurt them to care. Can it help them to not care? I know that when you have a camera in between you and the gore or 
the traumatic event, you can dissociate and you maybe are a better observer if you are dispassionate. You might be a better journalist if you can put your humanity on hold and get the facts, get the pictures, get the footage. And I've known journalists who are exceptional in that way, dispassionate, you know, uh, ice water in their veins, that uh, these things don't seem to get to them. That might make them better at their jobs and stronger at avoiding occupational hazards like moral injury. Have you encountered journalists like this? The question of, you know, being completely emotionally removed from the story, I think potentially is a problem. I think journalists need to walk a very fine line between not taking on the trauma of the people in front of them, while at the same time maintaining a degree of empathy and humanity. And journalists have said this to me repeatedly. The great journalists are those, I think, who can can do this because they don't get overwhelmed by the pain of the people that they report on, but at the same time, they retain a level of emotional sensibility that imbues their work with a very particular power. And I think if you don't have that, it becomes much harder to write about in, a, in, a, in an empathic way, and I think it can inform your photographs as well. And so it's been a privilege of mine to spend time around some very great war photographers, and they will say to me that the camera is not a complete barrier between them and the people in front. Yes, they've got to focus on the craft of taking the picture, and they've got to, you know, manage light levels and all that other kind of stuff. But at the same time, they are acutely aware of their subjects and wanting to do emotional justice to the power of their story. Because if they lose that, their work loses its great power. And I believe that. That's why when we look at these incredible images or we read these remarkable accounts of, of terrible events, they move us not just because of the content, it's because of the way it's conveyed to us. And that's what I think great journalism all, is all about. And so, yes, you want a degree of emotional distance, for sure you do. You can't take on the pain of other people because you will succumb. At the same time, you can't lose your humanity, you can't lose your sensibility, your empathy. And if you maintain that balance, then I think if you've got the skills, you're a very great journalist. Not unlike the skills required to be a good psychiatrist, I'd imagine. Yes, the, 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 yes, of course. You know, you can't take on the pain of your patients, absolutely, because, you know, I'm seeing on Mondays and Tuesdays when I run my long clinics, I see a lot of suffering from dawn to dusk. And if I can't step back from it, my world is not manageable. At the same time, if I step back too far, I lose the empathy that I feel for my, my patients, and they will know it. They will know it. They don't want to find a doctor that's so completely dispassionate that you can't acknowledge their distress. And so, yes, you do walk this very fine line, but you have to be really careful that you don't bring other people's trauma home with you. Dr. Feinstein, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it, and thank you for your questions. That is your Canada Land. If you enjoyed it, if you value the work that we do, we really do need your support. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free. You'll get early releases and bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Please come join us now. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read every email that you send. Our website is at canadaland.com where you can sign up for our incredible newsletter, which keeps you up to date with all of our stuff in case you miss a podcast here or there. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Caleb Thompson is our audio editor. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. 
I am your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.